With less than a week to go before Election Day, who better to have in the House than Seth Richardson, our chief political writer? He'll be talking politics on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Seth, as well as Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. It's a cold Wednesday in Cleveland in late April. Yeah, but like you said... And maybe some snow. <laughs> but like you said, only six days left, so we're we're barreling toward the election day. Barreling toward the election day, indeed. We will be talking about it. But first, who's the new president of Cleveland State University and why the abrupt departure of Harlan Sands? Laura, this was kind of a surprise, but kind of not. Yeah, I think the writing has been on the wall for this, but it was an unexpected uh, release of information on Tuesday morning and pretty impressively honest release from CSU. I mean, they didn't say that Harlan Sands was leaving to spend more time with his family, which I feel like is the always <laughs> what they say, right? Um, But the reason is, quote, differences regarding how the university should be led in the future. And that's from the University Board of Trustees. So they've already named a successor. It's Laura Bloomberg. She's the current provost, senior vice president for academic affairs. And she's only been with the college since September, but they've already been really impressed with her. And they say she's got what it takes to lead the university into the future. And they say they're parting ways amicably with Harlan Sands, that he's he's worked well with the university. I mean, he hasn't even been there that long, came in 2018. And recently, they uh, extended his contract till 2026. So I'm not sure exactly what caused this well, I think now. I think that they have to do the extension. I think there's something in the contract mm-hmm. language that says those extensions must be done in a certain cadence. What's interesting is whenever you have something abrupt like this, everybody goes, oh, is there a scandal? Were there affairs? Were there... I think the clearest sign that there wasn't was what they said. Because if it is for scandal, that's when they say, go to spend time with the family because <laughs> they have to cover it up. In this case, I, they just didn't mesh. I mean, look, I, I, he never really clicked in Cleveland. Cleveland is a tough place to to come into and get your footing uh, you know very few people have done it quickly Akram Boutros was one of the ones that did it very quickly Harlan Sands just never clicked you know was there was a constant question out in the community hey what do you think of this guy what do you think of this guy he just wasn't somebody that people <clears throat> got close to and his predecessor was the other thing was they were having massive turnover in the upper ranks. He was bringing mm-hmm. in people. And they were quitting within a year. That's a bad sign. That shows that there might be some management issues. So it sounds like the board was just like, okay, we're done. Um, Harlan hit the road, and they already had hired a provost who people had seen as a future president. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Sands, I mean, there's been a couple of people that have come in and and left right away. He was also at the helm when the university hired Douglas Dykes, the county former human resources chief, which was really shady. And we did a bunch of stories on that that Courtney Astolfi did because they said, oh, we didn't have any other qualified applicants. And then we did the the public records request. And there were a lot of other public, you know, really qualified people. But um, I mean, at this point... That 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 actually was scandalous because they were telling us things that weren't true and Courtney's dogged reporting kept revealing it. I mean, it was and it was one after another. It wasn't like a single story we did. There was a series of stories that had to keep correcting the record for for something that was inexplicable. I mean, it just didn't make sense. And they they didn't handle it right. I don't imagine that went over well with the board, although remember at the time. 
The board was standing firmly behind him. We got all sorts of nonsense from the board members about how much they believed in him at the time. And yeah, they did. I mean, looking to the future, I think it'll be really neat to have Laura Bloomberg on on leading this college. She's the second woman president of CSU, and she actually worked with the Case Western Reserve University president before when he was president of the University of Minnesota, and she was heading up the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He said he's a huge fan of her work. And I mean, I think more interaction and collaboration between the big two, you know, schools in, I mean, they're only what, three miles away from each other? That this could be really good for Cleveland. I also think it was very healthy how the board dealt with this, how mm-hmm. they how they announced it. You know, they, they'd been fumbling with some of the stuff that involving Sands in the past, but they dealt with this right. They came right out. They said honestly what was going on. They had a plan of succession. I mean, it's it you, gives you a vote of confidence that they're moving. A little bit odd that it happens before graduation day. Usually, wouldn't you wait till yeah, after? Yeah, pretty close to it, too, right? I mean, colleges start graduating in a couple of weeks, but... Maybe they wanted the the new provost to, you know, have a special role in the ceremony. I don't know. Or the new president, sorry. Okay, it's another changeover of leadership in Cleveland. We've talked a lot about it. That's a key, key role for the future of economic development here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does one of the finalists to be Ohio's school superintendent have a conflict of interest in the search process? Lisa, our reporter, Laura Hancock, is on a roll. She has just had one Grand Slam story after another. This is a tour de force of reporting. A great story. It really is, and it certainly looks like there's a conflict of interest. Steve Dakin resigned in February on the 25th as the vice president of the Ohio Board of Education. He applied for the superintendent of public instruction job three days later, one day before the filing deadline, and now he's landed on the list of seven finalists. But apparently this happened before, too. He was also on the short list back in 2011. So Laura Hancock obtained 46 emails and email chains that date back to November 29th. She found a few things. Dakin was the point person for the superintendent search. He was first to see the candidate applications. He also modified the job description in the ad, and he led the committee that was searching for a private sector headhunter firm. So, And uh, he did uh, not reply to Laura's questions about ha- him having an unfair advantage in this, in this situation. He only said that that information can be found in written candidate responses to the Board of Education, but didn't provide it. So we've issued another records request to get those documents. Yeah, this is the definition of conflict of interest. He's in charge of the process, sees everybody who's applied, fashions his resume after that so that he can try and position himself as better, changes the job description. And this is an alarming conflict of interest. And the only path forward here really should be the board when they get together. Is it today or sometime later? They should just reject his out of hand, that they cannot have the stench of this hanging over the selection process. Really, really wrong. But how did he end up landing on the finalist list not once but twice in the last, you know, 10 or 11 years? That's kind of odd. Well, the first time, I don't think he probably had a conflict, but this time he's running the selection process, resigns one day, applies right before the deadline. And you just, you can't do that. That, you could have lawsuits by others saying this was a cooked process. You can't have that kind of 
process going on, and well, we'll see what they do. If he makes it through the next filtering round, uh, there ought to be outrage because it's just not it's not right. Great job by Laura Hancock. Check out her story on Cleveland.com. We'll get to the free-ranging politics discussion with Seth in a minute. We've got to take care of some more news, though. Seth, what are the people trying to end gerrymandering in Ohio doing to get the map-making back on track in spite of the clear will of Republicans to do nothing and run out the clock? Well, they're trying to just get the Ohio Redistricting Commission to even meet at this point, right? Because once Republicans saw the federal court ruling or the a federal court basically said they intend to rule, and if there are no maps by May 28th, they're going to use a previously um, a map that was previously deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Uh, Republicans have just refused to meet, have refused to call the Ohio Redistricting Commission in. So, the ACLU of Ohio, the Ohio League of Women Voters, and the A. Philip Randolph Institute are asking the court to basically force the Ohio Redistricting Commission back into uh, back to meet. Uh, you know, basically to hold Republicans in contempt for not holding these meetings. I mean, they, there is a risk if the Republicans do nothing, because on May 6th, there was a deadline with the court to provide new maps. So that's well in advance of the federal court deadline. So I don't know what they're thinking. I, I, Maureen O'Connor and the Democratic judges on the Supreme Court have not shown any sign of backing down. So if they don't come in with a map on May six they, they could be held in contempt do you think they just don't care I, I don't know why they would at this point if i'm being honest with you from a strategic standpoint they they sort of got everything they wanted from the federal court basically saying here's what we're going to do now there will probably be more litigation around that so i guess you're kind of taking a risk there but you know their whole goal has been to pass these <clears throat> excuse me these, uh, you know, gerrymandered maps and, you know, the federal court basically saying, OK, yeah, we're going to do that at this point. If there are no maps, why wouldn't they just try to run out the clock? And even if they are found in contempt, you know, they're like, here's the thing. They're not concerned with how they are viewed by everybody because not necessarily everybody is paying attention to this process super closely. So even if they are held in contempt, you know, a lot of them only care about their primary voters anyway. And because this is such a Republican state. It might not even cause that much damage to them, politically speaking. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio has 32 public high schools in the list of the top 5% in the nation. Laura, which ones are tops in greater Cleveland? Well, it's it's not a surprise. These are the ones that always show up on the top 10 list. Solon and Chagrin Falls were in the top 10 for the state. Um, both my kids' schools and my high school made the list, so I should have. I'm pretty happy about that. But I do want to point out that the lower a school's ranking, the more likely that at least 25% of the student population is impoverished. So, like SAT scores, like everything else, the more money a school district has, the more likely they are to be on top. Right. We're working on a pretty massive project to show what the challenges are of teaching children who are in poverty. Something we'll be rolling out later this year. Uh, I should mention my wife teaches at Solon, full disclosure. <laughs> uh, they are always at the top in part because of the great teaching by my wife. Yeah, um, I just the U.S. News and World Report, they do use these six factors. They use college readiness, reading, math and science proficiency, uh, their performance in those subjects, underserved student performance is 10 percent, college curriculum breadth and graduation rates. So it's not just looking at, you know, one metric, but um, 
it's I'll, I'll name the other ones that made the top 30 in Ohio uh, in our areas. Rocky River, Aurora, Hudson, Brecksville, Broadview Heights, Bay, Kenston, Cleveland's John Hay Early College, Revere, and Orange. So, it's cool that Cleveland has a high school in there yeah. because Cleveland is the the city of poverty. And so that's showing that they're able to do it even with those challenges. We, the U.S. News and World Report rankings have some rigor to them. It's why we talk about them. There's a gazillion other rankings that we don't really mm-hmm. do because they don't seem to have the same rigor. Absolutely. But just like colleges have tried to back away from them in recent years, I mean, obviously, rankings are not everything. But there's, there's something if, if you're looking at a school district to help you compare. It's Today in Ohio. How is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority changing its approach to fare collection? Lisa, this is pretty radical. Yeah, and it sounds pretty exciting to me. Uh, RTA has uh, finalized a $2.7 million contract with Easy Fare Mobile Ticketing, and this will allow them riders to use the transit app. So this program will be launched on Wednesday, June 22nd with a lot of fanfare in Public Square from 11 to 2. So what Easy Fare does, it connects RTA with other regional transportation systems, including Lake Tran, Stark County, ARTA, and the Akron Metro RTA. So this allows a rider to do trip planning across all of these lines. They can do real-time route tracking, they can do fare payment, and this also includes granular transportation transportation so it includes not only trains and buses but also where they can find like rent bikes and scooters to finish their journey so they can pay through this app the uh, transit app or they can buy smart cards and you can still pay cash i mean the fare boxes will remain on the buses and the trains there's a separate story coming about the debate about how to deal with fare jumpers and whether that should be a crime or it should be a citation or or how to to deal with it. So it's a very different approach, a more humanistic approach to trying to get people to pay. And also, too, in a kind of a related uh, action by RTA, they're hiring eight civilians as transit ambassadors. They'll be embedded with the transit police, and they'll be working with issues on the line, whether it be homeless people riding or disruptions or whatever. And they're also seeking two social workers for crisis intervention, you know, on RTA lines. Yeah, that, that, that's really, it's quite a different approach to, to what we've seen in recent years. It's I wonder if this is the impact of uh, this bird song, the, the, the director that came in a few years ago, because this is not how they were operating in the past. Cool stuff. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. Okay, Seth, with less than a week before Election Day, let's hear your thoughts on the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate race and some other races, because we have no idea who's going to win. Well, I would call the Republican race a bloodbath, but I think that's probably unfair to bloodbaths. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> we, we, throughout, throughout the past year and a half, right, ever since Rob Portman announced he was retiring, I think the general thought was, Okay, if Trump gets involved in this race, it's going to basically provide some clarity and, you know, kind of clear the field. And that'll be the effect of it. And Trump picked the one candidate in J.D. Vance that did the exact opposite of that. So we don't really we just really don't know. I think anybody who says they know who is going to win is probably lying to you or just making a, a very bold claim that they hope turns out right. So I'm not even going to you know sit here and say, hey, I have an idea of who's going to win because I think this race is frankly very wide open. Um, we've seen some polling come out in the past couple of days, some like, you know, from more reliable pollsters that show 
up to a quarter of the electorate is still undecided. We're less than a week away and a quarter of the electorate is undecided. On top of that, you've got this very interesting dynamic where for the better part of a year and a half, everybody has been super deferent to Trump, right? Where they've said, oh, he's the best and, you know, I'm the most Trump candidate and those sorts of things. And you have, you know, the surrogates saying those things as well. All of a sudden, this J.D. Vance endorsement comes down and now you have people kind of turning on a dime and almost criticizing Trump or even attacking Trump. The Club for Growth is putting out an ad where they are being very critical of Trump and his endorsement, pointing back to his endorsement of Mitt Romney and asking how that went and playing some of J.D. Vance's past criticisms of Trump. So so let me let me stop you a sec. So so really, you could if I asked you to do the the, the mental gymnastics, you can almost chart a path for each of these candidates to vote. Oh, easy. You know, Matt Dolan would be the anti-Trump guy, so the Trump people all split the votes and Matt Dolan emerges, and, you know, Josh Mandel gets the the benefit of the advertising. I mean, you really, what are you going to do on election day? You're going to have seven different stories pre-written and, you know, just ready to go on deadline where, where one of them wins? Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, you know, it's 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 like, it's a little harder, I think, for Jane Timken at this point. She just seemed to kind of fade by the wayside. Uh, and even Matt Dolan, I think it's going to be difficult, though a poll did come out yesterday saying he was actually in first. Um I'm a little skeptical of that. I'm actually very skeptical of that. Um, But I mean, yeah, you could conceivably make a path, you know, come up with a path to victory for pretty much the top five candidates at this point. Um, And it's and it's all about turnout. I mean, you know, this is going to be an incredibly low turnout election. So the, the numbers you need in this fractured thing make make a difference you don't need that many votes, yeah yeah right? well, i mean you could i mean conceivably you could have the winner of this race getting you know call it 28 percent, right 28 percent of the vote of a very low turnout race depending on how the vote fractures um i doubt that the winner is going to get anywhere north of um if the if the winner of this race gets more than 40 percent, i would be very surprised to be quite honest um that's a that's a really low number uh especially in a primary and actually i'd probably venture that it's even going to be in the maybe 35 percent range and I'll, I'll make that guess because you do you just didn't see you know when trump came in and made this endorsement you didn't see everybody flock to a candidate jd vance is a very polarizing figure in the republican party because one he hasn't been involved in ohio politics for the past five years you know he's been kind of you know, at the ancillary parts of it, but not heavily involved. He certainly wasn't active during the Trump presidency like the other like some of the other candidates were. And it so it, it, it's just it's a huge gamble for Trump as well, because there's a very real chance that J.D. Vance loses. And all of a sudden, some of the luster is taken off of the you know coveted Trump endorsement going forward. Well, I, I look, I can't help but think that what Vance said about Ukraine will not work against him. Every day that goes by, more people are sympathetic to what's happening over there. You, you mentioned Timken as having maybe uh, fallen some. But, but my question about that is Portman's endorsed her. He's appearing with her. Will it make a difference on Election Day? Are there Republican voters who are undecided will say, well, I like Rob Portman. If Rob Portman says Timken's the candidate, I'll vote for Timken. It, it could. You know, I don't want to say that it won't, but we've seen since the Portman endorsement, you know, I kind of thought she would get a boost and sort of enter into that upper tier. And it just hasn't really seemed to happen just from, a, you know, um, it, it, nothing in the race seems to indicate that. Right. Um 
You don't. But we have no clue. That's the problem is you can't trust a single poll. Well, I mean, true, we're, but we're, but we you are, can you can kind of take some cues from what the candidates are doing. And none of the candidates are really trained on Jane Timken right now. Right. That's so all true. the focus is that's on true. either J.D. Vance, Josh Mandel and to a lesser extent, Mike Gibbons, though, he's, I think, slipped over the past month as he's had some, you know, very bad debate performances. And, uh, you know, that comment about the uh, middle class that was dug up from uh, just September. Yeah. It's just he just he yeah. hasn't been ready for prime time. At least that's what a lot of Republican uh, voters and insiders think. Right. He he had his moment and had a real shot at it, but, you know, he, he wasn't good on any of the debate stages. He got into that, you know, fight with Josh Mandel and then it, it just, it, it just hasn't really worked out for him. That doesn't mean he's not going to spend. He's still spending quite a bit of money. He's so. spending a lot of money. All right. I want, I want to talk to about a couple others briefly too. The, the, you would think that DeWine will win in his primary battle, mainly with Jim Renacy, but is there a chance for Jim Renacy? Um, a, I would call it a, a pretty minuscule chance, I would think. If this were a one-on-one, I think that uh, Jim Renese would actually stand a pretty good chance against Mike DeWine, uh, or even Joe Blystone, for that matter. Um, but the fact is, if you know, once you start getting a crowded primary with an incumbent who is... Yeah, un, you know, unpopular, but not we're not talking like record levels of unpopular, like corruption, you know, you know, approval ratings down in the teens level of unpopular. I'm just hard pressed to see how that's going to work. And DeWine is spending. I mean, he's he's taking it seriously, right? He's, you know, pumping up. I think he's got um, you know, he's he's increased his ad buys over the past week from like 800,000 800, to like a million plus a week. So he, he's taking it seriously and he's going to have more of an organization than any of the other candidates. Uh could, yeah. could Jim Renacci eke one out? I, maybe, I guess, but it, it just seems highly unlikely because even if, you know, if DeWine gets, let's call it 40 percent, right, which I think is pretty uh, – that's actually a terrible number for an incumbent, but, um, you know, maybe in the ballpark of where he could end up landing. Yeah. Then you've got three other candidates who are splitting 60 percent of the vote, and that just becomes really right. hard. Right. I think it's going to be tough. I do think DeWine may face more of a contest than many think in November. One last one. We talked in detail about this yesterday. I said I want to go deep. But just to get your perspective, do do you think anything is changing in the Chantel Brown-Nina Turner race with Nina having the extra – the, the extra voters on the west side that weren't there last time that she thinks she can appeal to? Or do you think that this is an easy one for Chantel? Brown? Yeah, I mean, it could help. And I mean, if it, it, it may help it. Maybe it's a closer margin. I, I don't know. It just seems like they're probably aren't as many people paying attention to that race this time around and the powers of incumbency really do matter um and you know pe- you know Chantel is spending and people are spending on her behalf too so um i don't think that there are enough voters that you know have been added in that district to offset um you know some of the stronger areas where Chantel ran in uh, last year's special election. So I would I would say that she's probably the favorite there. And again, like we know how important incumbency is, especially in Northeast Ohio. That's you know uh, that's king up here. If you're if you're sitting, uh, it's always huge news whenever an incumbent goes down. And I, I so I think she's probably got a little more of an advantage there. All right, all right. You're listening to today in Ohio. Magic Johnson is the celebrity of the hour with a dramatization of his early Laker years on HBO and a documentary about him on Apple+. Plus. Laura, how does Northeast Ohio figure into that documentary? We know how big a role Cleveland played in the Michael Jordan documentary last year. Well, we had one of uh, Magic Johnson's theaters here. 
at Randall Park Mall. And it's actually in the final episode, the fourth episode of the series, showing the fanfare of it opening, the grand opening. I believe it was in 1999. And Joey Marona wrote about it. He actually went to the theater, I don't think at that time, um, but he said he saw 102 Dalmatians there because they had popcorn shrimp. So that's a pretty big deal when a, when a movie theater is that cool. And uh, they had the big seats and the plush, the you know, the, the plush recliners. And Magic Johnson wanted to make an investment in black communities. And he noticed there weren't a lot of great theaters in, in minority communities. So he went and he, he did that for a business. Well, he spoke here at the Tri-C fundraising mm-hmm. lunch back, I think it was in 2015, and talked about why he was investing in those communities. He said, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when black people go to a Starbucks, another one of his franchises, they buy the most expensive drinks. So he had huge profit margins in his businesses because he understood what the audience wanted. And he, he they were huge investments. The whole fourth episode is about Magic Johnson's business acumen, and he really... Um, made a huge difference. It's too bad it closed. It didn't last that long, right? It closed after, what, eight years? Yeah, it closed in March 2007, citing the low ticket sales. But think about what was happening to the mall at that time. I mean, the entire mall was going... um, the mall culture. I mean, he couldn't have any kind of control over that. And they closed the cinema. It was bought by an independent theater. Um, It was vacant, damaged by arson. Then in 2016 torn down along with the rest of the mall to make way for that Amazon fulfillment center. There are still two magic Johnson branded theaters remain. He doesn't, he doesn't own them, but it's in Washington DC and then in Harlem in New York city, which um, was just like a block from my apartment when I lived there. So I'm familiar with that one. I never went to the Randall park one though. The documentary is worth seeing just as a reminder for magic Johnson's no look passes. He was (laughs) a magician with those things. It's Hence today. the name Magic, right? Well, no, he's the name Magic. <laughs> they explain all that in the documentary. It's really well done. It's today in Ohio. Why did a federal judge deny a push by Metro Health Systems to get sanctions against an attorney who brought a whistleblower lawsuit against the hospital system and others? Lisa, it's a little bit complicated, but it is worth talking about. It's a juicy little pot boiler is what it is. And anytime attorney Subodh Chandra is involved, there's always drama. But federal judge J. Philip Calabrese rejected an argument from Metro Health that attorney Subodh Chandra was dishonest and inappropriate in representing county jail whistleblower Gary Brack. They said that he made misleading media statements, damaged the, you know, the case by dragging it out and ignored, you know, other testimony. And Metro Health was seeking attorney fees in the suit, although they didn't say how much. They accused, uh, And let's give a little background. Gary Brack was the county jail nurse who worked for Metro Health, who brought to light the bad jail conditions that resulted in many jail inmates losing their lives. The county did settle for $99,000, but the $99,000, but Metro Health accusations were dismissed. So Judge Calabrese said there was no determination of fault since the case was settled out of court. He agreed that Chandra was aggressive, but within his professional obligations in representing his clients. And he also said that he felt like Metro Health was trying to seek vindication by calling for sanctions. There was a weird part of it, though, deep into the, the the very long opinion, where the judge tried to say or said that Metro Health worked with 
the county administration on a jail centralization plan, which we now know is what led to all those deaths at the jail. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. And actually, from our reporting, we know isn't true. Metro Health wasn't part of that at all. Metro Health came in after the deaths to take over a lot of the medical service to try and be part of the solution. I was really surprised by that being in there. Metro Health came out and adamantly denied that, but it was an odd thing to put into a decision on sanctions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess that Chandra reached out to uh, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer with a statement where he called out Akram Boutros, the Metro Health CEO, and says that the accusations were amounted to a personal tantrum and that the board should supervise Boutros. A personal tantrum. You can always count on Sabode to use colorful language. He knows how to work with the media. I guess a lifetime in, in as a prosecutor and city law directors taught him a few things. Okay, stories on Cleveland.com. Like I said, it's a little bit um, complicated, and we tried to bring order to it. It's today in Ohio. Seth, you'll be back next Wednesday, I presume, so we can talk about whatever happens on Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, I might be a little tired, but uh, I, I will do my best. Yeah, but you're going to be the show, man. We need you to come with with some sharpness and clarity. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Please forgive Seth and I. We're both dealing with some health issues, and our voices are crackling, and we're doing sniffles. We'll be back tomorrow. 